0: Well, good morning, guys. Welcome. Welcome back. Um, Who's who's new this morning? Just raise your hand. Great. Glad to have you. Welcome to Band of Brothers. Um, This is going to be a little bit different in the sense that uh, we're actually filming um, this morning. Don't worry, you're not on the camera, but we used to film on Mondays in a studio to an empty room, and now we're going to film this, and this is what we'll actually stream live. Um, it's streaming live right now. So uh, guys who are still um, meeting in small groups off campus are watching this, and other people are watching it, and so uh, be on your best behavior, because uh, this this is live, so a um, bit of housekeeping. This, the first week is the week we load you down, so if you walk past the table outside, you saw a lot of documents, and you need to pick up one of each of those, because they're going to be critical to doing your homework each week and helping you study through the book of First Peter. So one of them is um, a devotionary, which is something I do every morning. I get up and I, I blog through the Scriptures. I'm doing Genesis right now. Um, this is the one I did on First Peter, and it's going to, again, be part of your homework just to help you get a better idea of where we're going in the book of First Peter. There's also a um, document. It's a... Uh, it's by Dr. Thomas L. Constable, who was a professor for years at Dallas Seminary on 1 Peter. And so that's another document I want you to get your hands on. It, it's kind of a commentary that will assist you in understanding the book of First Peter. I've given you a recommended resource and bibliography of books that I've been using and Mitchell's been using to study through the book of First Peter. Uh, they just recommend different commentaries and resources that you might want to use. Also, some online resources. One of my goals in this whole study is not only to study First Peter, but to help you learn how to study the Bible on your own. Uh, you may already know how to do that, and you're perfectly fine with that, but we're going to try to give you tips and tools to help you in your own study of God's Word. And So, there's going to be some online resources that are available for free that, that I use every day that will assist you in studying the Word of God. And so, those are on that recommended reading list. And then finally, there's two handouts that you can take and help you understand the kind of the debate over who wrote 1 Peter. Now, you may go, well, 1 Peter, it's got his name. It must be, 1, it must be Peter. Well, that's what I think it is, but there are a lot of scholars who argue over the fact of who wrote the book of 1 Peter. We're not going to get into that this morning. But you can study about it, you can read about it, and and get some input into why do they make a big deal out of this. So every week we're going to try to give you resources like that to help you in your study of God's Word so that this book will come alive, but by extension the whole Scripture will come alive to you so that you can begin to piece together the whole picture of God's redemptive story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. So this morning, we're going to jump into the first part of uh, 1 Peter. So let me pray for us, and we'll get going. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for giving us this book, five chapters, but jam-packed with so much information to help us grow and to walk with you. And I pray that, Father, as we unpack it, as we study through it, that you would show us what you would have us to see. More than anything else, Father, would you show us you? Would we see you and your sovereign plan for the world and for our lives and help us to understand that the days in which we live, though difficult, are exactly where you would have us and you have a plan for us in the midst of them. So we thank you, speak to us, guide us, direct us in the time we have together and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to dive into this book and you may have studied 1 Peter before, I've studied 1 Peter before, but... One of the things, I shared this with one of our pastors on Sunday, the Scriptures have kind of taken on a new light for me, a new perspective based on the current circumstances in which we're living. You can't read the Scriptures, at least I can't read the Scriptures now without filtering it through the lens of our current context. Everything that's happened over the last particularly two years, all the stuff that's you know, in, in the media and that we're inundated with, that has affected our lives, affected our culture, our politics, relationships. When you read the Scriptures now, those things should affect how you read the Scriptures because one of the incredible things about God's Word is that it is meant to apply timelessly. It's going to apply to the people who read the letter from Peter in their first century context, but it also has application to you and I right here, right now. And, and one of the things, one of the terms, there's a lot of new terms that we've all heard over the last uh, few years, but one of the ones we've heard a lot is this idea of identity, identity politics in particular. The book of First Peter is all about identity. Who are you? Now, you may say, well, I'm uh, an American. I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a whatever, or I'm a father, I'm a a husband, I'm an architect, I'm a lawyer, I'm retired, whatever you may see yourself, your identity. Identity is huge in the scriptures. Who are we? And to Peter, and part of the main purpose of this letter we're going to see is that he's helping these people understand their true identity. I'm concerned that many of us as Christians today are a little bit confused about who we are, why we're here, and what we're to be doing. And that's why this book is so critical. And it's a perfect follow-up to the lesson we did or the series we did uh, last fall on the kingdom of God, because Peter is speaking to people living in the kingdom of God who happen to be living in a particular region of the world where things are not really in their favor. Things are not going too well for them. The culture is against them. They've been ostracized. They've been polarized. They're looked down upon. And he's trying to help them to understand, first of all, who are you? Why are you here? And what should you be doing with your life? So we're going to jump into it. And I want to start in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11, is the kind of the genesis for the title for this series, Aliens and Strangers. Listen to what he says. This is how he describes these people to whom he's writing. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get a letter from someone and he calls me an alien and a stranger, I don't know that I accept that as flattering. I don't know that I particularly like being referred to in that term, but he's going to Refer to them in this way, and then he's going to use it again, as we see in the opening verses. He's trying to get them to understand something about themselves. He says, you're aliens and you're strangers. What does that mean? What, what's he trying to let these people know? And we'll learn more about who they are in just a second. But he calls them aliens and strangers. It's interesting if you read various translations. And one of the online resources I, I recommend for you in that one of those handouts is a resource where you can look up Scripture and see it in a variety of translations. And one of the reasons that's good is you can see how different people over the years have unpacked the Scriptures and translated the Scriptures in an effort to make them applicable to their particular audience at a particular period of time. So, the King James is going to look dramatically different than the ESV, which we use in this church. So, Aliens and Strangers is how the NASB, the New American Standard Translation, puts it. The NIV says foreigners and exiles. You can look at the New Living Translation, which is one of my favorite translations, and it says temporary residents and foreigners. But you you begin to get the picture of what these two words meant to Peter. The ESV says sojourners, kind of an antique word, one we don't use very much, and exiles. And then, of course, the King James calls them strangers and pilgrims. So what's he telling these people? Once again, it's not necessarily very flattering to be called an alien and a stranger, but he wants them to understand that that's their true identity. This is who you need to embrace or or what you need to embrace about yourself. Now, as as we're going to see, he's writing to people living within a geographic area and it's a pretty large geographic area with people living in different communities and different regions with different names for those regions. And they're all going to be prone to say, well, I'm from this region and I'm from this area and I'm from this culture. And no, he's saying, no, at the end of the day, you're all aliens and strangers. You all don't belong. Over in First Peter 1, this is how he starts it out. Listen to what he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He establishes who he is, and then he says, "...to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you." Now, this is a salutation to a letter. I don't know about you, but I have never received a letter with that kind of a salutation. In other words, an introduction. It's common to all letters of that period of time to, first of all, introduce yourself and then to tell who you're writing to, which to me is kind of odd that they're the ones reading it. They know who they are. But part of what he's doing is he's trying to get them to understand, no, you think you know who you are, but this is truly who you are. Elect exiles of the dispersion. What what an odd description. What a strange way to refer to these people. So you can see that Paul or Peter is, is trying to drive home a point. He's called them everything from exiles to aliens and strangers. What a way to win friends and influence enemies. You're an alien, you're an exile, you're a stranger. But again, why? And what do these words really mean? Well, quick word study. The, the word exile that we just read in those opening verses is really a word that means foreigners. He's calling these people foreigners even though they're living in their own land. See, this has nothing to do with where they have citizenship. And that'll become clear in just a second. They're exiles. He refers to them as aliens. What's that word mean? It means you're an outsider. You don't belong. You don't belong here. I remember when uh, my dad was a pastor, and he actually, when I was born, he was pastoring in Dallas. And when I was four, he felt called of God to go up to New York and plant churches. And so at four years old, we were, I was transplanted along with my three siblings, and we moved to New York. And when I got ready to go to school, my mom was from Mississippi. My dad was from Pennsylvania. And here we are living in New York, and I went to school for the first time, and I was a foreigner and an outsider. I did not fit in. I sounded like my mom because I spent more time with her in those early years than I did with my dad. And so when I opened my mouth in a New York City public school, I was a foreigner and I was treated like one. I was looked down upon. I didn't fit in. I wasn't one of them. And then he uses this this phrase stranger, which again, it's the same word for exile. You're a foreigner. You don't belong here. Now, what's going to be Pretty clear as we move on is that these people were feeling that very thing because they were Christians living in the same place where they had always lived, but something had changed. What had changed? They had come to Christ. They had stepped into the kingdom. They had become followers of the Messiah, and now they don't really fit in where they always fit in. Something had changed in their relationship. They were now aliens and exiles and foreigners and strangers. So this is the area that they lived in, this region in northern Asia Minor, which is what it was called in that day, and it's Bithynia, it's Pontius, and I put these maps in your notes. This is where they were living, and here's what's really interesting. It's the area that is now modern-day Turkey. Never been to Turkey, have no desire to go to Turkey, but this is where these people lived. And what's really fascinating is that they're living in a region to which Paul, the apostle, never seemed to go. Remember, Paul had three missionary journeys, and yet in those three missionary journeys which are on this map, he never made it to these regions. He never made it into Bithynia, into Pontus. He never made it into northern Galatia. So, here's the apostle who was called by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he never made it up into the north. We don't know why. We we don't know the particular reasons for that neglect, but here's what we do know. He never made it to Bithynia, to Pontus, to Cappadocia, or northern Galatia. Never got there. He bypassed most of Asia Minor in all of his missionary journeys. So, how did the people living there... Come to faith in Christ, so that Peter would later write this letter. See, these are the kind of things you have to ask when you're re- reading these letters, is, or any book of the Bible. Is you have to ask the why question, the how question, the who questions of how did these people living up here become aliens and strangers in their own countries? What took place? Well, to figure it out, you have to go back to the Book of Acts. You guys are really familiar with the story of Acts chapter 2 in particular at Pentecost. Something happened. What Jesus said would happen did happen. The Holy Spirit came and he empowered and filled and empowered the disciples to where they became incredible missionaries and declarers of the gospel. And here's what happened. It says in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So here's the context. It's the period of Pentecost—it's the time of the year where the Jews would come from all over the world. They would gather in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and at that particular time was when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, who infilled the disciples who were gathered in an upper room. They suddenly had a power they never had before. They went out into the streets and they began to declare the the gospel, but they did it in a miraculous way. They did it in tongues they didn't know, not ecstatic utterances, not um, gibberish, but in actual languages that they didn't know how to speak because the text tells us that everyone was hearing this in their own language. And what made that amazing is that these guys are from Galilee. How do they know our language? And then the text goes on to tell us that These people who were hearing the disciples speak in their own tongue were amazed and said, how is it that we hear each one of us in his native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. See, that's what makes this a miracle, is that you have all these people from all over the known world at that time gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost, and suddenly they're hearing these Galilean disciples, I believe both men and women, speaking in their own languages. It's a miracle. But notice what it says. There were people from where? Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Now, what happens is pretty, pretty incredible. Because of this miraculous event, these people heard the mighty works of God, which in the context is they heard of Jesus, the greatest work of God, that Jesus took on human flesh, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus sacrificed his life on a, cro- a cross. He was raised again on the third day. He ascended back up into heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell those men and women. They heard it, and they believed. It says, there were added that day 3,000 souls. Who were the 3,000 souls? All those people from all those different nations. What happened to them? They went home. They eventually returned home. They went back into the cities from which they came. So, they went back to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and where? Bithynia. This very area to which Peter is writing to these people who have come to faith and are now going home. Back into their communities, back into their family groups, back into their synagogues in some cases, back into the relationships they always had, but something had radically changed. They had been transformed. And that transformation results in alienation. You know, one of the things that I saw happen growing up in New York as people came to faith in Christ, they were alienated almost immediately from their families because they were potentially coming out of a Catholic background or a Jewish background, an agnostic background. But when they came to faith, they were almost immediately alienated from their families, from their peers, their relational groups because they didn't fit in anymore. See, that doesn't happen much here in the Bible Belt. When we come to faith in Christ, because there's still somewhat of a Christian influence in our region of the world, it's not true in some other places, and particularly in the Northeast and probably on the West Coast as well. These people went home transformed and were immediately alienated from their own culture. So he says, you're aliens and strangers. You you don't fit in. And and one of the reasons he's reminding them of that is that they wanted to fit in. They didn't like the fact that they were alienated, that they were strangers in their own land, that they suddenly didn't fit in and that people didn't respect them as they once did. See, he wants them to know your citizenship has changed. Don't be upset with the way you're being treated because it's normal and natural because you are no longer citizens there, you're citizens somewhere else. See, something has changed. Something is different. Look what Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, he's writing to believers in the land, the city of Philippi, which is a Greek-speaking area under the rule of Rome, and he's telling them basically the same thing. There are people around you who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Some of those are your own family members. Some of those are your bosses, your co-workers, your community peers, he says, but they're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. That's the whole point of the series we did in the fall on the kingdom of God. And if you want to go back and study that, you can get it online. But what we talked about for 11 weeks was the fact that we belong to a different kingdom, and that kingdom is here in part, but it's coming in full later. And this is exactly what Paul tells the Philippians believers, that you're no longer a citizen here, you're an alien. And here's what he wants the people living in Bithynia and in Phrygia and all those, Cappadocia, all those nations in northern Asia Minor, he wants them to know you we're already an alien and a stranger. Even before you came to faith in Christ, you were an alien and a stranger. The question for everybody, whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, is what is it or who is it you're really alienated from? The minute you were born, you were born an alien. Well, wait a minute, Ken. I was born in Texas. Well, good for you. So was I. But I was born an alien because I was alienated from God. I was born in sin. I was born with a sin nature, and I, was, I inherited the wrath of God poured out against the sin of Adam and Eve. I'm, I'm blogging through Genesis, as I said right now, and I'm in chapter 12, but I spent a long time in chapter 3 about the fall and what happened when Adam and Eve made that fateful decision. And it has impacted us, every generation before us, and every generation after us will be impacted by that one decision. And so we, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we have been alienated. Every person born on this planet has been alienated from God. We come out of the womb alienated. That's what we read in Ephesians where Paul tells them, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by the Jews, by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews would refer to the Gentiles, well, you're uncircumcised. It was a, uh, a term of demeaning them, of classifying them as less than human, of uh, less than spiritual, because you're not like us. You don't bear the sign of the covenant. But he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I know of no sadder verse than that last one, that that's the state of everyone you know, whether they're family members or community peers or co-workers, if they're outside of Christ, they are without hope and without God in the world. And they are alienated and separated from Christ. And so were you at one time. So was I. And yet we have been changed. We have been transformed. And now we have a different alienation. We're no longer alienated from him. Now we're alienated from the culture that we thought once loved us. So he goes on and says, and he came and preached peace to you. Who? Jesus. Who were far off. And peace to those who are near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. I love how scripture fits together, which reveals the divine author behind it. So here we have Paul saying, You, because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on your behalf are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's he telling them? Again, these are people living in Ephesus, another Gentile-speaking community, under Roman rule where Christians are in the minority, and he says, guess what? You're no longer an alien and stranger from God. Now, you're an alien stranger where you live, but it's because of your relationship with God. See, everybody's an alien and a stranger. The question is, who are you alienated from? Your peers or God? And for those of us in the room who are in Christ, we need to embrace the fact that we're no longer aliens and strangers from God. See, something has changed and I don't know about you, but I would rather be alienated from the culture in which I live than from the God who made me. But here's the rub. Here's the problem. You and I as believers spend a lot of our time wanting to be loved by the world, wanting to fit into the world, wanting to be embraced by the world, wanting to look like the world and have what the world has to offer, and we end up in a way, living like we're alienated from God, and it ought to be the opposite. See, that's what he's telling these people. That's the whole context of 1 Peter. Live like who you are. Live out your identity in the midst of where you live. You're no longer alienated from God. Uh, Ligonier.org, there's a quote I found there that I think is really pertinent to what we're talking about. It says, the Greek terms for strangers and aliens in this verse, reveal the desperation of those outside of Christ. Strangers translates the plural form of the word xenos in the Greek, a person who lived in a foreign land without any rights except those given by treaty. Aliens is from the plural of the term poriokos, a resident alien, one who lived more permanently in a foreign country than a xenos, but still had only a few rights. I think sometimes when we read these these letters and these books found in the the Scriptures, we we bypass certain words just because we don't want to do the time it takes to study what they really meant in their original language. And you have to if you're going to understand what the writer meant. You can't just blow past verses and just go, well, I don't really understand that, so I'm going to go to the next one. We're to dig into the Scriptures. We're to Mine them like treasure. We're to use the resources made available to us to understand what it is that God was saying through men like Peter. See, this idea of being an alien and a stranger is is so important for us to understand because we are living that way right here, right now, 2022, in January, first of the year, in this place called Alito, Fort Worth, Arlington. United States, we are aliens. It goes on and says, in Jesus, believers are no longer vulnerable and homeless. They have citizenship in a heavenly country, a place where God guarantees divine protection forever. See, that's our destiny. That's where we're citizens, not here. Now, no way am I suggesting that you don't have a responsibility here living as a citizen of the United States. You should vote. You should participate. You should care. You should influence. You should do what you can to live as a faithful citizen of this country, but never forgetting that you really don't belong here. And this will not always be here. And sometimes I read the news and I think, it may not be here much longer. So what do we do? How do we live? We remember our citizenship. We remember where we're from. Look what Hebrews 11 says. Hebrews 11 is called the great hall of faith. This is the author of Hebrews writing about the patriarchs, those those Old Testament saints who walked with God. And he goes through a whole list of them, starting with Enoch and, and going down through Abram and Noah, But listen to what he says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Isn't that interesting? Here we are all the way, looking all the way back into the ancient times in the Old Testament where these men and women had to live in a context that was very detrimental their relationship with God. And he goes, they knew they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, the people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. So once again, we have the author of Hebrews reiterating the same thing. There is a better place. There is somewhere else that we belong, that we are citizens. And yet, we're here, right? We're, we're Every morning I wake up, I'm in the same place. And I walk out into the same community. I, I read the same kind of sordid details in the news of all that's going on, not only in our country, but in the world. And it can cause me to fret. It can cause anxiety. I seem surrounded by an increasing number of people who are opposed to what I believe and who I believe in. But see, the issue in the book of 1 Peter is that he wants us to understand that the here and now in which we live is nothing compared to the hereafter promised to us. And if you're not careful, you will begin to concentrate on the here and now because it's all you see. It's, it's every day you wake up to the here and now, right? You, you wake up to your home you wake up to your job you wake up to your community you wake up into this reality and you begin to forget that there's another reality a truer reality the hereafter what God has planned for us after this I did two funerals last week both of men who were very active in band of brothers they're gone they've passed on And in both cases, I was able to stand up before their family members, their widows, and say, but we know where they are. And I could say it with confidence because I knew both of the men. They are not gone. They've gone on. They've moved ahead. And someday we'll see them again. That's the hope we have in Scripture. So this idea that you got to look at the here and now as compared to the hereafter, and you can never lose sight of that. Don't put one over the other. See, there's there's a common phrase we use that, you know, sometimes we can be so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. We, We can become so concentrated on heaven that we lose sight of the fact that, yeah, but I'm not there yet. I have to live here, right? So the question for us is, how do we live as citizens of heaven while we live on earth? It's not a sick joke on God's part that he left us here, right? He could have taken us when he saved us, but he didn't. He left us behind, just as Jesus left the disciples behind. Why? Because they had a job to do. Why are we left behind? Because we have a job to do as well. We have work to do. We have a task ahead of us. Adam was given a task. Multiply, fill the earth. You and I have been given a task, a kingdom mandate to take the gospel to every nation on this earth. So are we doing it? We have a heavenly homeland. We have a home. We have a citizenship. We know where we're eventually going to go. That's why there are so many songs written about the hope that we have and this, this particular one that probably every guy in the room knows. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. But is that true? I don't know about you. Well, I do but I'll speak about me. I can feel really at home in this world. I can get really comfortable in this world. There's a lot of things about this world I hate. There's a lot of things about this world I love. There are a lot of things in this world that make me comfortable, that make me feel at home, that, that bring me joy and pleasure. And there's nothing wrong or sinful about any of that. But I can't get too comfortable here because as soon as I get comfortable, I get complacent. And I begin to cave in and give in and compromise. So once again, here's Peter as we begin this whole series. Peter, an apostle, writing to those who are elect. And I believe Peter wrote this. I've given you two articles you can read that support this, but I believe Peter wrote it, even though this has been debated for centuries. I think it's amazing what people debate about especially theologians, you want to just shake them and go, would you just, okay, get out of the weeds and get back to the context. Why are you spending so much time arguing about who wrote this? See, they'll throw out things like, well, the Greek's too too sophisticated for a a common fisherman. All right, if you believe that Scriptures are divinely inspired, God can teach Peter sophisticated Greek if he wants to. He wasn't an idiot. He wasn't a moron. You know he spoke Greek, so the fact that he could use sophisticated Greek shouldn't eliminate him as the author. They'll say, well, there's, too m- there's not enough references to the historical Jesus. In other words, if it's Peter, why didn't he say more about Jesus? He doesn't have to. These people are already in Christ. He's dealing with a different problem. He's not having to prove the identity and authenticity of Jesus. He's trying to get them to live like Jesus in the context in which they live. Some say, well, The persecution of Christians by Rome didn't start until much later after Peter had died. This really isn't about Roman persecution. This isn't about Rome persecuting Christians. It's about Christians being persecuted by their own peers and family members. It's about Christians just not fitting into the culture. This is not about political persecution. This is about spiritual persecution trials, tribulations, and troubles. So I'm going to go with the idea that Peter wrote this based on all, almost every single early church father. If you go back and look at their writings, they all think Peter wrote it. And you can see it through the book itself. 1 Peter 5.1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. There's only a handful of people that could say this and only one named Peter. So it's not some other person who's writing on Peter's behalf or who stole his name in order to give his letter some authenticity. No, this is Peter. Peter is telling these people something they need to hear, and he's telling a particular people, and he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. What an interesting phrase. What's he saying here? What's he calling them? The, The word dispersion is actually in the Greek from diaspora. It's those who have been scattered, the Greek term literally means to Jews not living in Palestine, but dispersed or scattered among the Gentiles. Now, you remember in Pentecost, what, what, what did we read there? It said that there were Jews from all over the world, some born Jews, but having moved to different countries, come to Pentecost, and they've come to faith. But there's also proselytes, which means there's Gentile Jews, and they all, after coming to faith, go back into their areas. But here... It's a metaphorical usage. This isn't a letter written to Jews who happen to be living outside of Judea in these far-flung regions of the world. This is really speaking to Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ who are now, who find themselves living like aliens and strangers in their own cultural context. In other words, it's God's people. I think this letter is written to both Jews and Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ in the devotionary that I did this last summer, I wrote this. They're predominantly Gentiles who were having to live out their newfound faith in the middle of a secular and oftentimes hostile culture. Sound familiar? Is that, that your world? I know it's mine. Peter refers to them as elect exiles of the dispersion to stress the temporary and alien nature of their status as followers of Christ. You don't belong here. You don't fit in here. You're elect exiles. That word exiles, again, it's, it's people who are living in another land other than the one to where they're from and where they belong. It's metaphorical. They belong in heaven, they belong in the kingdom of God, but they're living in these different regions of the world. The word elect is pretty important and pretty powerful and pretty controversial, right? If you've been in church for very long, you, you've probably run across all the debates about what does it mean to be elect, but it literally means in the Greek to be picked out and chosen. That's what it means. When we elect a president, we choose them in spite of all the debate of whether they really got chosen or not, okay? Nobody elects themselves. I mean, the word literally means in the Greek and in English, you have to be chosen by someone for a position. That's what this word means. Constable in his notes says, God chose them because He determined beforehand that they would believe the gospel. You have been chosen by God. He uses the word foreknowledge in that same opening verses, and that word involves choice or determination on whose part? God's part. Now, why is this important? Peter wants these people to know that the context in which they're living, persecution, alienation, Is God's doing. God has put you right where you are. You have been elected by God. You have been determined by God for that. You ever ask God why? Something happens in your life and you automatically go, why? Why me? Why not him? Why is this happening? I don't need this right now. I don't need the grief. I don't need the hassle. Why? Because God's predetermined it. God has a plan, God has a purpose. And this is the entire theme of this letter. God has a purpose. God's in control. God is sovereign. God is working all things together for our good and His glory. He wants them to understand that the situation in which they find themselves, which they do not like, is God's will for them. It includes their eternal state and their temporal state what God has planned for the future, what God has going on now. It includes their salvation as well as their suffering. See, guys, what I know is you do not like the suffering part of your salvation. You don't like it. You reject it. You run from it. You you try to do anything to dissipate it, get rid of it. You try to pray it away. You try to do anything in your power to eliminate the suffering side of salvation, but yet Jesus suffered which Peter will talk about in this letter. These people are living in difficult circumstances. So are you, so am I. They're most likely Gentiles who've converted to Christianity, and now they're suffering the unexpected consequences of their decision. Think about that. I came to faith in Christ. He promises life abundantly. What the heck has happened? Where's the abundant life? This sucks. I don't like this. Much to their surprise, the good news of Jesus Christ had produced some fairly bad outcomes. They were experiencing significant trials and persecution that had begun to produce doubt and despair. They're confused to find that their salvation had been accompanied by suffering. And I know you felt that. I know you've been through that. And so what does he do? He says, guys, you have been elected, you've been chosen, you've been predetermined, by the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Look at this statement. Look at this reminder. It's a Trinitarian trifecta. He he just goes right to the, the core and says, guys, this is the work of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. See, they had been foreknown by God, predetermined, chosen by God. They had been sanctified, set apart by the Spirit, and they had been sprinkled and purified by the blood of Christ. That is a non-negotiable reality in their lives, and yet they can't seem to understand why they're suffering. Their salvation was the work of God in full, not theirs, but God's. And they, they couldn't get it through their heads that their circumstances didn't change any of that. Your suffering does not change anything about your salvation. So how does he end? This opening salutation, this introduction, hey, I'm Peter, and you're aliens and strangers. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What a strange opening to a letter. But here's what he's trying to tell them. May you have grace in the here and now. Grace to endure what you're going through, but never forget the hereafter. See, the key to enduring here is remembering what's to come. we got to keep our eyes on the prize. we got to remember. He goes on and says, Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, now listen to this, to a living hope. What's that living hope? The hereafter. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. When do we get the Inheritance in the hereafter, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Where is it right now? Being kept by God until the proper time when he will disperse it, when he will bring it. See, what's he telling them? Yes, you're living here and now. Yes, you're going under, under persecution. You're suffering. You have trials. Things are not going quite the way you think. But don't forget about your inheritance. Don't forget about this thing that is being guarded by God for you And it will come in the last time. It will show up. So he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials for a little while. You and I are suffering right now in many ways, some more than others. I I got a message last night about one of our table shepherds on Thursday morning who's been in the hospital the last 10 days with pneumonia. He's also suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease. And his, his days are numbered. He's suffering, but he's faithful. And he's confident because he knows where he's going. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. For a little while, you and I are going through difficulty, but we have hope because we know what's to come. So here's your discussion questions. When was the last time being a Christian left you feeling like an alien and stranger here? When was the last time you felt like, man, I don't fit in here anymore? You may have to go back a ways. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt that, but talk about that. Secondly, why did Peter want his readers to embrace the idea that suffering was just as much a part of God's plan for them as their salvation? Why is that necessary for Peter to write to a group of people who are in Christ to be reminded that suffering is as valuable to them and part of God's plan for them as much as salvation? And finally, I want you to go read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. What are some momentary light afflictions in this life and how do they prepare us for all that's to come? Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for letting us get started again and that we can come and meet and gather together. I pray that you would protect us over the months ahead as we study your word together that, Father, you would keep us well and whole. But, Father, if suffering, sickness comes, may we embrace it as part of your sovereign will for our lives. May we not reject it as an anomaly that it's a punishment. It's, it's something we earn. Father, may we always understand that nothing passes to us that doesn't go through you. And that, Father, you are sovereign. And I ask that you would speak to us through your word as we talk around these tables this morning. And may we understand who we are, our identity, and all that you have in store for us. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have fun.